I see the contrivance in that and I abhor it and I love it as well. It's fun. You're playing with nature. You're con- you are trying to control it. And by trying to control it, you're also showing how little control you have. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf, and I release weekly episodes with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. Or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast, and they can enjoy it too. We also have a Patreon page, where supporters join at tiers that start at just a dollar a month, and it helps keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. You also get thank yous like exclusive merch, as well as access to our bonus content, Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests about materials, processes, business advice, and general studio nonsense. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, you can check out the link in the show notes and sign up to hear Tim's chat with today's guest. And if you want to save a little cash and still support the show, you can now sign up for yearly subscriptions and receive 15% off the tier price. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. Products like Arnheim 1618, a high-quality, low-cost paper made in collaboration with a historic paper mill near the city of Arnheim. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, swears by it for printing lithographs, and our friend and guest of early episode number four, Miles Calvert, evangelizes its use yearly, encouraging his students to participate in Speedball's New Impressions Contest, where they produce work in every print medium. So if you're looking for an affordable paper that can support whatever inky ideas you throw at it, then head on over to speedballart.com to find out where you can pick up the start of your next edition. My guest this week is Dolores Desaad. Dolores is an etcher originally from the UK who now lives and works in Koh Samui, an island in the Gulf of Thailand. We'll talk about how experiencing a natural disaster encouraged her to walk away from her PhD in American art history and go back to school for art, the ways in which humans believe they are in control and are mistaken, bonsai, orca, hiking, and the labors of Hercules. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to take a walk in the woods with Dolores Desaad. Hi, Dolores. How's it going? Hi, Miranda. Yeah, good. 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 Nice and chilled. Good, good. Well, I should hope so. I've I've seen where you live. <laughs> I've gotten to visit you on Samui. So um, it's a wonderful place to, to be chill, for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's worse places than a desert island to be stranded on right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so I know you actually from traveling around Thailand. You know, I believe we first met in Chiang Mai before I lived in Thailand. And I got to know your work. And of course, we have the mutual friend in uh, the dear Kitty Kong. And I'm just hoping you could maybe let people know who are listening, who you are, where you are, and what you do. Okay. Well, at the moment, I'm in Thailand. I've been traveling for the past five years in Asia. Um, I'm making artist mainly, although I do sometimes do other things. Um, I work based in landscape. I worked in London for many years. 
and felt like I needed a break and needed to go and explore new landscapes and new printmaking studios. Um, my first stop off was in Japan, where I worked with an amazing printmaker called Kaola Masahiro. Um, and I spent a year there, which was fantastic, making lithography and etchings. And then I went to Thailand and happened to meet Kitakong, um, just you know, saw saw his studio advertised and went in and met him and he was he was lovely and so I stayed there for a couple of years and, and then I moved somewhere more rural, like you said, and now I'm in the jungle, which is my passion really, the jungle and the um the wild nature and um yeah, I'm just stuck here now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think as 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 we all are, that's what we're saying, sort of wherever we are in the world, it's like, well, this is where I'll be for a while, it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. So where did you grow up and what role did art play in that time in your life? Well, I um I grew up in the Midlands in England and I always loved art. I loved art and reading and anything quiet that <laughs> was no hassle and no drama and I could just keep my head down and, and ignore anything that was crashing around me. And um nobody in my family really was very interested in art. My mum, because I liked art, would occasionally ask me to make signs for her, um, for uh, her workplace, you know, if they were going to be closed early. or open, And I was terrible at that kind of thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm very clumsy and my handwriting is awful, but, you know, artists get labelled with these kind of skills. And so, yeah, I used to make signs for my mum sometimes, but when I wasn't doing that, I would be drawing because it was quiet. Mm. I, I kind of gave it up because it wasn't going to earn me any money and I was young and, you know, I believed to the careers advisors who told me there were more sensible jobs to go into. And I, I tried different things. I did work as a gardener for a while. And then I um, fell into an education system that took me through to a PhD in history. And I ended up teaching American history at university. Oh. But popular culture and the kind of fun stuff like Elvis and any oh, uh, novels and yeah, fun things anyway. But, um, you know, it was it was something I'd fallen into. It was fun stuff, but it was it was not what I'd always wanted to do. And then one time I was on holiday in Thailand. There was a big tsunami, mm. which um, I was uh, in on the beach and very lucky that I managed to escape, managed to run very quickly. And the sea where we were was very slow. So we didn't we didn't get harmed at all. We ran up to the top of the mountain and we were looking down over all this chaos and, you know, those kind of moments are where you reassess your lives and make some changes. Yeah. So I came back and I gave up working at the university that I was working at and I started doing a art foundation course at a local community college and absolutely loving just the freedom and the fun and not having to be serious and mm. not having to be in charge and just played and then realized I could do this more <laughs> so I, I I'm still playing I just carried on playing yeah yeah well so was printmaking sort of something that you came to then through university or how did it find its way into yeah. into your heart into your practice and ended up being a huge part of your life well, on, on the foundation that I did, one of the teachers had some printmaking experience and he took me off to a little room that was, again, it was quiet. So I could, <laughs> I, I could play quietly on my own yeah. and get away from the, you know, raucous art students some of the time when I wanted to. 
But the, when I really got into it was when I went for my degree and I, I went to London Metropolitan University and I walked, I, you know, I went around all the different universities on their open days and they were, you know, they, they all look good. How do I make the choice? I walked around London Metropolitan and they showed me the printmaking room and I heard two teachers there telling people off in an old school kind of, ah. this it. <laughs> these are the rules. You cannot do that. You must do this. And, you know, more or less wrapping people over the knuckles with rulers. It was like, you know, Victoriana. But I thought, I'm going to learn something here. Yeah. So it drew me in. And I had the most amazing teacher who had such a, such a passion for etching in particular. Mm. And he could see what I wanted to do and he could help me get there as well. And his, his name was Nigel Oxley an absolutely fantastic, knowledgeable printmaker who worked at lots of um, editioning studios in London for many years and then ended up in this university telling people what to do and what not to do in quite strict ways. Yeah. And I just loved it. I, I fell in love with the process. Mm-hmm. And then what was sort of, I know your your current bodies of work pretty well, actually, I think. And But what was sort of your, your early work life? Did, like, did your background in history influence you at at all and kind of that transition or was it really like you know leaving that world behind for something else entirely it's funny I really did leave it behind you know Mm. I mean everything that I was looking at about the history was American popular culture and my period was from 1860 to the to the 1960s Mm. and actually my my PhD was on film fan magazines from the interwar years it it was you know they they were great fun it was nothing I went to a much older history when I started drawing but I think I started from a place of when I was younger and there wasn't really much art in my house in our house all I could remember was some placemats that had these amazing (laughs) fantastical castles and places and you know etchings from the 1900s 1800s and 1900s old explorer engravings and that was that idea of the landscape or of art or some that was the only presence really in in the house that I grew up in and so I started from that point of just thinking well why why are those images there why were they on our dinner tables on placemats (laughs) what are they they doing and what did they do to my brain and and why why am I still obsessed with them why are these places that I could see then still in my mind and I still see them you know I, I look out at a landscape and I reconfigure what I'm actually seeing and I try and reframe it to become the same idea of a, a magical landscape mm-hmm. yeah and I've, I've carried on with that ever since and of course living in London as well um, when I was at art school and after there isn't much magical landscape really you know you have to strain to find it Absolutely. But we all we all know what a landscape should look like. And we have this idea in our head and we think it's somewhere else. We think it's so far away. But actually walking around the waste grounds and the the um, public wrecks and the um, marshes that were near my house as well, you know, they're quite deserted and, and ghastly, really, you know, <laughs> in spaces. But there's small parts of them that are absolutely beautiful. They're still growing. They're still alive, no matter what the human beings that are traipsing <laughs> over them and dumping rubbish on them do. They still create this beautiful place. This beautiful magic still happens. Yeah. I mean, it must be in terms of your practice, in terms of what's kind of going on internally, such a huge shift to go from London to, as you say, the, the jungle, you know, where <laughs> you are now. Um, 
did that did moving from London to Thailand did that really change your practice particularly? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, when I told everyone that I was coming here, they all said, oh, that's amazing. You'll, you'll get so much inspiration because it looks just like your prints. Mm. And my, my prints were collages. They were composites of, you know, small plants that I would find in a, on a motorway verge or, or um, on someone's front windowsill or a crack on the floor, you know, that something was growing through. And I put them together to make these amazing landscapes. When I got here, and the amazing landscapes really are like the the um, you know fantastical images that we've all seen. How can I draw that? That's too beautiful. Mm. It's already there. And actually, you know, I, I, I'm a big lover of Werner Herzog and and his quote about nature being vile and base. When you're actually <laughs> here, it is gross. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's not it's not magical. It's it's angry and violent and overbearing and powerful <laughs> and awful mm-hmm. really yeah so I think I think I've been trying to constrain it and control it a lot more and I and by do, and to do that I've been uh, collecting dead branches and bits that have broken and fallen off and and you know been removed from the jungle and taken them back to my studio where I create these, uh, recreate these trees that are twisted and gnarled and kind of Frankenstein trees. Mm. Bonz- um, the bonsai series are all composites again, but composites of dead branches, broken things, yeah. and, um, twisted and gnarled in, into some kind of reconfiguration that we can see as a tree. And we're trying. I think the idea of trying to control nature is something which is seeping into my work heavily. Mm. You know, we we try and contain it, and we try and pretend that we're we're here and and we're powerful. And these plants take over. You just turn your back on them, and they're there growing. Yeah, there's just so much in what in what you just said that I'd I'd love to to talk about even more because I've always also connected with this idea of the kind of construct we currently have of nature as oh it's the place where you go to relax it's the place that's peaceful it's the place where you find spirituality and because that's what I grew up with you know particularly I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in the United States you know that is alpine lakes and mountains and everybody goes hiking on the weekend with their dogs and it's just yeah. what you do you know you go to nature and it's the place that heals you and and yeah you get your life meaning yeah but that this really is such a modern idea and i had a professor when i was in my postgraduate work who was did american art history and Dr. Sarah Moore. And one of the things that she would talk about in her lectures was particularly in the United States, that construction happened specifically through this propaganda with these incredible landscape paintings, these large scale landscape paintings that people were doing of the West and then sort of shipping back East, you know, Yosemite trying to basically encourage people to go be colonizers, to go see this beautiful landscape, to go claim it. Mm. And that really is a bit of the heart of how, at least particularly in the United States, we're so proud of our natural landscape and we, we really hold it up as, as something that is, is ours and is important. And, and yet, you know, she talks about sort of before this really conscious propaganda. If you look at the way even old houses were built, they'd be, the windows would all be facing the street because that's where the people are. That's where the action happens. There is no building houses of 
facing the mountains because the mountains, you know, that's maybe what you just crossed. That's what, you know, killed your, your husband and three children on, you know, like people didn't want to be in the mountains. They didn't want to think about them. They want to think about the woods. And now 200 years later, you know, people want the view. They want to go hiking. They have to get the Subaru with a four wheel drive so they can go even deeper into nature. And it's just, it's just so funny because it's something that I had never questioned until that. Yeah. It was like in the old years, hundreds of years ago, people would go across the Swiss Alps and they'd put a sack over their heads so that they, so that they couldn't be influenced by the wild degradation of nature. Oh my people, gosh. The people would be carrying them and, you know, whatever they used to carry the Westerners across. But um, yeah, you would be, you'd succumb to the evilness of this terrible nature. And now it's, it's of course, the Westerners, I mean, the colonialists. Um, narrative of Asian yeah. art, the the landscape, and how we were strong we could come, we could colonize this nature and take mm-hmm. over from the savages. It's it's all bound up in the same kind of idea of this pretty, beautiful, controlled landscape. Yes, yeah. I had a a funny moment early on coming to Thailand. I was stuck in Bangkok traffic, which is, of course, you know, part of life here. (laughs) And I was in the back of a cab with uh, someone who works at the gallery with me, and she's Thai, and she's um, she's maybe in her mid twenties, and she was asking me about where I was from, and and you know, what's what part of America are you from? That sort of thing. Just getting to know you questions because I think I'd only been at the gallery for about a week. And so I was telling her about the Pacific Northwest. And of course, I was telling her about hiking. And I was very proudly showing her photos on my phone of these hikes that I'd been on. And she was very politely looking at it. And then at one point, she just kind of stops and nods her head and goes, yeah, white people love walking. You know? <laughs> like it just, it just didn't connect with her. At all. And she, it, was, it was clear that I was not the first Westerner to try and, you know, get her excited about, look at this, look at this hill I walked up, you know? <laughs> I was like, right, right. Because it's just, it's such a, as you say, that idea of like, like, like the Western, the colonization, like it's all there that like go, I, I can walk into the wild and then it's somehow mine. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that, the kind of, you know, when you see the pictures of, well, usually men holding fish, mm. these giant fish that they've caught, like they've, they've conquered nature. They've got this fish. They fished it out of the ocean. It's a fish. Come on. If you can't, <laughs> <laughs> with all your equipment and your tools, and you've not really conquered nature there. And, right. and I think that's the same, yeah, the same with the walking out into the jungle. And yeah, you can go on a trail, but yeah, <laughs> you're not. You're not surviving in the wild. Yeah, try and spend one night. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's um, actually my uh, advisor at graduate school, Dr. Pia Cunio, who um, was episode 100 on the, the Hello Print Friend podcast. We didn't get into it so much when I chatted with her, but one of the things that she studies, because she studies horses in art, um, you know, in the early modern period, it's that same idea of the man on the back of the horse, the horse is rearing, but he's in control. It's again that I am more powerful than, you know, I, I'm just, you know, I have to conquer nature and it, it has to be, we're just so insecure as these soft, little apes, you know, with, we don't have big teeth. We're not very strong. You know, we really like, 
<laughs> we don't have much to offer actually in the, in the wild. And so we just are constantly trying to make ourselves feel better. Like I, I tamed the stallion, I climbed the mountain and caught the fish, right? <laughs> yeah. I grew a bonsai. It grew yeah. in this direction because of me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, uh, I, I beat it. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. Because it's um, when I was hiking quite a bit when I was still living in in Seattle, you know, you say it is really, really beautiful, but it, it truly is. There were a few moments, you know, where you can truly feel that kind of horror that I remember. And one was, uh, I was way out, you know, it, it's not like I was, it, it was, I never did anything like insanely ambitious, but I just was on a, on a trail that just wasn't very well used and I was pretty far out on it. So I was no, I hadn't seen anyone on the trail. I'd been walking for hours. And I was there with my dog at the time and we were really hadn't seen any other humans and we turned a corner and she started freaking out like she smelled something I don't know. And then the bushes near me started sort of moving <laughs> and all of a sudden it's it's truly you feel that 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 squishiness that like I have nothing I have no like whatever is in those bushes I don't have anything to fight it I you know I have I have my my dog who's also terrified you know that's, that's as close as I have so there was a moment like that and there was one moment when I thought I had gotten lost and it was still like all of a sudden the trees it's like they they change shape on you and and you don't know which way to get out and, and they look scary you know yes. they don't like they go from these beautiful majestic ancient wise creatures <laughs> to quite sinister quite quickly when, one of my early, yeah one of my earliest memories is watching the wizard of oz and the trees in that mm. oh boy they are evil yeah mm -hmm. and they, they they do that they do change shape they do they do fool you Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you've, um, you've moved from London, as you say, you're, you're now in the jungle and gaining inspiration from that. Um, and as we were just chatting, I had a question and it's almost like maybe sort of a, a personal question for me. And, and, um, and so you don't, you also don't need to answer it if you don't want to, but it, it occurred to me. So, um, I, have if I have a phobia in this world, it it might be of tsunami. It's a recurring nightmare actually that I have. Um, mm -hmm. And so you, you know, as you say, you actually experienced um, that in person, and now you've moved back to an island. And I just, <laughs> I just find that incredibly brave because I have never experienced it. And I, like I said, I don't know why ever since I was a kid I have nightmares, and really the only reoccurring nightmare I've ever had of like of large waves of just the vastness of the ocean. But mm. now you've kind of returned to a place where you're, I imagine, near beaches, on beaches quite regularly. And but, yeah, how how did that work for you, I guess, is my question. Or, or was it even an issue? <laughs> I love Thailand and I, I love the jungle. And the sea, I've never I've never liked it. I've mm. I I'm not I'm like you, I never loved it. I'm scared of it. And seeing a tsunami seeing how powerful and how immense and how there is no fighting that what you know you you're scared in the in the woods and there's a bush moving and there's something but you know the sea the whole sea coming towards you yeah and just not stopping is absolutely yeah it's terrifying keep up with the nightmares because <laughs> they're <laughs> they accurate right safe. yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> so I haven't, I didn't go in the sea for 15 years afterwards. Mm. And I've been in the sea maybe three times since. Yeah. I go kayaking sometimes, but I, I don't swim. But we are in the Gulf here, so it's quite safe. We're protected on either side from any major tsunamis. And I think I would feel different if I was in Krabi, which is where we were mm. for the tsunami. I don't know. I mean, you can't run from your fears all the time, but I, I do look at the sea in a in a it's it's not a nice place. You know, it's not a nice thing. It's mm. it's strong and powerful, and um, I don't see it as a pleasurable, fun fun palace you know yeah yeah but I love being here I love I love Thai people I love Thailand I love the jungle like I say I love the weather there's so many things that I love and this this sea is there I love watching the sunsets and the sunrises mm -hmm. they're good they're good you get a good view if you sit on if you sit on the beach yeah, yeah. the sea itself I'm wary about but it's funny because here I mean obviously there's not many tourists at the moment um most people live here but the fishermen treat the sea as if it's, you know, it's their workplace. They don't stand admiring the sunsets and the sunrises and and they definitely don't keep the beaches pristine. And, you know, it's it's a work thing. It's a workplace. It's something that's there that they can utilize. And I think I see that here more than when I was living in London, when I'd go to coastal towns and, you know, it would be more touristy. Mm -hmm. certainly now when there's no tourists you know it's it's a different view yeah I got to see that I think a little bit when we were on Samui just for that week um, yeah you were here it was quiet right it was really quiet we you know there were a few um a few other westerners but they were full-time residents like yourself mm -hmm. and you know we just got to watch the fishermen come and go and go out at night and the boats with their green lights out on the water and um, yeah, you, you, you say it's, it's not this sort of, uh, oh, the, the ocean, like, you know, the healing power of the ocean, you know, like, <laughs> which is often the, the attitude that people who don't work in it, um, you know, uh, take to it for sure. And so I think I did see that kind of practicality in relation to the ocean. And I think also, you know, sailors and fishermen, are people who also famously have respect for the ocean and have respect for the sea and really understand that it is powerful and dangerous and that you are very small sometimes in a in a very large space particularly in waves or anything like that it's um it's a dangerous place yeah and not just because of the creepy crawlies that are in it you know <laughs> there are so many dangers there are so many things to worry about <laughs> I work, but like I said, you know, I don't trust nature at all. Mm -hmm. I I don't like it. I don't I don't think it's a good force. It's it's evil. It's you know, the sea is just part of nature. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I think about sometimes. I don't know if you've if you've ever seen it, but there's um one of the many beautifully filmed David Attenboroughs. Uh, you know, either Blue Planet or This Planet or uh, you mm -hmm. know, all, there's so many, right? Planet Earth. And there's a scene in it where there are orca who are not just tossing a baby seal back and forth, but uh -huh. they're hitting it with the full power of their tail and flinging the live baby seal a hundred feet into the air and catching it again and like basically playing, volleying this thing back and forth for apparently no reason. <laughs> 
I just remember watching that. I don't even I don't even remember when I saw it. I mean, it's probably 15 years ago, and I have this perfect memory of it still. And just being like, nature <laughs> is evil, you know, <laughs> penguins as well. Yeah. I I had a commission once, and I had to draw some penguins for someone. They were they were lovely. They didn't realize that artists just make everything up anyway. They they gave they gave me money for research, mm. so I had to go and research penguins. And all I knew about penguins before that was the March of the Penguins. They're you know. Amazing, beautiful, lovely. No, no, they are child beating, stealing. Mm. Oh, it's just terrible. They're thugs. They are evil, <laughs> terrible thugs. thugs. The more I looked into them, the more I read about them, the, the less I had to remember. Just don't think about penguins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. So I also am really curious too, because you know, you're you're now um you've gone from London, as you know, this is an arts hub. You worked at uh, East London Printmakers or worked there, is that correct, for a while? Oh, that's right, yeah. I yeah. was the chairperson there for four years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was a great time. I mean, we had a lot of links with other arts-based organizations in the area as well. It was quite a vibrant artist community there um, with loads of different studios that did different things, like from 3D printing to bike mending or woodwork studios and uh, yeah it was it was really good really good yeah and that's and of course London is it's one of the big art centers of the world you know London New York LA um all those 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 attitudes that people take towards it and now as you say you're living somewhere quite rural and it's affected um of course your practice right because everything Mm. sort of changed in that way but I'm also curious if you could speak to just as the kind of um, community sense of being an artist, like, do you did you find that that you've had kind of to shift in that way? Or are you just sort of liking the quiet? And I know that a lot of the really positive feedback I get from the podcast are from other artists who are living outside of the centers, are living a rural life, and they mm. say they really enjoy listening to the podcast in part because they can feel connected. And so, exactly. I don't know, yeah, if you can just. Speak to that yeah. experience because I know that there are people listening who share it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's hard. It's hard being an artist making work on your own, and I think that's that is one of the things that I loved about the printmaking studio is that I could quietly make my own work, and then I could go and and do the printing and and be around other people and see what they were doing and feed off the energy that they were they were you know the stuff they were creating and and work together and yeah, I really miss that and going to the galleries and mm. and being around a community that just want to encourage the arts and and be a part of the arts so I miss that a lot but you just find ways to reach out online and you know I listen to the podcasts and they are great I mean the good thing about everyone being stuck in the place that they're at is that we have to make these links I'm listening to your podcast about people all around the world that I wouldn't otherwise get to meet and I wouldn't a lot of them I wouldn't have heard of Mm. so my my artist network has broadened considerably because I have to reach out, because I have to find a network somewhere. And it's freeing in that way, because I can reach out anywhere. I can talk to people in New Zealand and and in America and in UK. And before I was in quite a small network, I mean, one square mile really of, of galleries and artists that were giving each other that support. But it was small. It was small. And now it's it's less localized. It's wider and broader. And it's important, I think, to still keep those links 
to reach out and talk to other artists and listen to other artists and feel like you're part of something together yeah talking yeah absolutely and it's so interesting to think about living in these art centers that actually can be kind of limiting because you're not being pushed outside of a comfort zone and you know you don't have the necessity to say oh I'm gonna send a message to someone in India because, mm. you know, you, you, it all seems to be at your fingertips. You've got, you said, you know, the 3D printer person and the museum person, yeah. and they're all right there because you're in London or LA or New York. And yeah, yeah. And this actually means that the um, community that you build is going to cast a wider net. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'd like to maybe switch gears just a little bit and talk about some of your series specifically, um, because there mm-hmm. are these beautifully rendered just absolute i don't know like they're, like they're um the ones i know from you are, are etchings and you really take advantage of etchings ability to have light and shadow and detail and drama and some of them you know even almost have that kind of photographic quality to them in their preciseness and yet they're always unexpected compositions. You know, you can tell that this isn't a composition that's been put together and said, look at how beautifully I've reproduced nature to make you feel good, you know, (laughs) (laughs) which which some landscapes do, right? You know, you see them and you're like, oh, I can see this is designed in a way to uh, elicit a a release of, you know, some kind of relaxing chemical in your brain, right? That, But, um, you know, there is this sort of this tension and this drama in your work. And so if we could talk to the specific, um, you know, I have pulled up here the Wasteland series. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe if you could sort of speak to what was going on in that way. And then also, I'm also curious for how do you go about taking work that is people have this uh, association with landscape of being relaxing, pastoral, uh, uh, just purely aesthetic experience, and then sort of creating that tension in that drama using a, a composition that it, it makes it unexpected. Well, I suppose, I mean, I do the paradigm of this idol, this faraway place, this exotic um, in all those and all the colonialist connotations that are mm. that are attendant with that. Um, I, I love those old those old etchings and engravings of 18th, 19th century landscapes that explorers would be going off and traveling and finding these amazing places and sending pictures back. And then actually you look at the pictures and you realize that they've completely altered. It's yeah. untrue. It's made up. And of course, nobody would believe the pictures of the places or reproduce the pictures of the places if they weren't fitting in with what exists or if they, it's kind of like the, they were like the equivalent of clickbait. Right. You know, like this, this place is amazing. Believe me, you must look at my picture. You must, you, you must come to this place. You must control this place. And, um, I think I, I just, I see the contrivance in that and mm. I, I abhor it and I love it as well. It's fun. You're playing with nature. You can, you are trying to control it. And by trying to control it, you're also showing how little control you have. Mm. And so I'm taking these elements that I find that are, I mean, some of them are, beautiful you know I'll I'll find a beautiful tree and then I'll there'll be an ugly tree right next to it and just the way they work together and the way they fight each other and you know buildings that are on the side of motorways that you're not supposed to notice when you're actually looking at the landscape in with a with an artist's eye 
it's different from driving along the motorway. You know, you, you, you see things differently. And I want other people to notice these things. I want them to see the emergency staircases on the side of the motorways and think, what does that mean? That's in your periphery. Yeah. You don't know that that's there because you're not supposed to see it. It's not pointed at, but you're driving past it and you, your subliminal is seeing that. And what does that do? And what does it do to actually point to that? to change the landscape so it isn't just what a supposed landscape is supposed to look at so it's not just a pretty place but really it is quite menacing and I'm I am on the fence I don't know whether we are the problem whether we're the menacing part of these Mm. landscapes or whether nature is the menacing part of these landscapes and I just want to have that tension between the two yes yeah yeah that's such an interesting question because of course you know when I'm talking about these orcas tossing around a (laughs) baby seal or penguins abusing their children, we're bringing a human morality to it, right? Of course. You know, she's saying like, well, as a good person, I would never do that. And so we're taking this completely human-centric construct and putting it on things that aren't human, that have nothing to do with people. You know, like the orcas are out there living their life, killing baby humpback whales and only <laughs> eating the tongue. And it doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with me. And yet I have a very strong emotional reaction to it. Yeah. And so that idea with nature is that if, if nature was out there, you know, doing things like, um, I don't know, there's all kinds of horrible things with like storks and how like they have two babies. And if it looks like the bigger one's going to live, they just let the bigger one like peck the smaller one to death you know these like oh the storks as well they're not cute (laughs) yeah I know (laughs) it's just um but again that's that's a human morality right of course you know that we're like well babies are precious you can't just kill a baby because it looks like you like the other baby better you know (laughs) and and any kind of morality can be a good thing and it can be a dangerous thing Mm -hmm. it can be used either way yeah absolutely so the in this series, you have a few that are called like the sixth labor of Hercules, the third labor of Hercules, the seventh labor of Hercules. What are those speaking to? Um, well, I, they were all journeys. I was taking journeys. So the labors of Hercules, he was sent off into into nature on impossible tasks mm-hmm. and supposed to come, not come back, but he always managed to come back. He always, he always did it. But it, it was just a reference to this idea of a, a long journey and trying to do something and failing at doing something and what you bring back from that journey as well. So I, they're they're not related to the story so much, but it's you know a way of sort of pointing at the ridiculousness of the journeys that we take through nature and the importance that we give nature and and the challenges that we set ourselves that uh, we will fall off the edge of a path, mm. will the the path will collapse, the bridge won't quite reach the end of the destination, the the stairs don't lead anywhere, but we still keep walking up them. You know the mm. the futility of of journeys trying to get to the other place yeah yeah it reminds me of um my grandfather was in the coast guard and you know you'd always see these sort of news stories about um you know someone who tried to sail across the ocean without a map or tried to climb to the top of this mountain and my mother would always 
you know, her, cause her father was the one who was in the Coast Guard. She'd always just be like, that idiot. You know, like she, because she, <laughs> she grew up in a family where, you know, her father and, you know, the people that he worked with have to risk their safety to go, you know, to go out into the storm to save these people who have tried to take on nature in some way. You know, she yeah. never bought into that romantic ideal that there was something, uh, uh, good and moral and, and upstanding about risking your life to do something in nature because as her father's <laughs> like I'm gonna have to go out there with a boat and you know lower down into the water and get you out you know <laughs> yeah he's just doing it for a wage he's not trying to be a hero yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it's very different yeah he's like out there sort of saving them and it's I see that a little bit in what you're sort of saying about how we we create these sort of artificial challenges for ourselves. You know, like I, I have to climb to the top of Mount Everest without oxygen. I need to be the first person to reach the South Pole um, while, you know, on a vegan diet or something. You know? <laughs> and it's, it's really difficult to come up with those challenges where people haven't done it before. Exactly. Because we've all done so much. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to find a place that is truly nature. There's mm. always a path or a staircase or a signpost or some, you know, there was there was one of the one of the drawings in that series was an actual place that I went to that there were big boulders and things everywhere and I'd walked for miles and it was in northern Wales it was a really desolate beautiful beautiful place and as I was walking there was this huge boulder in the way and it just looked like the most impressive you know fantastic wild spot and there was a handrail so that you could walk around the boulder (laughs) it was you know three hours into the hike and it was in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing else except for this handrail. Yeah. I just loved, I loved that. I loved that there was someone had been there and someone had decided that was the spot that needed to be made safe for all the people that were trying to heroically go where no person had gone before and, right. and really find themselves in the in the wildness of nature. Yeah. Yeah. There's a um, a podcast series, or it's not a series, that's actually just a podcast that's called This Is Actually Happening. And they did a mini series. It was two episodes. And it was about a woman who had gotten lost in a jungle in Hawaii for, I think, 14 days, 16 days. It was something pretty remarkable that she had survived it. And mm-hmm. the first series they talk about um, they talked to her family in the first version of like, you know, the, the worry and the searching and then all of these just bizarre things where people started to accuse the people who were searching of having murdered her basically. And, you know, you know, just this like crazy conspiracy theories going on in this town. And then they actually ended up finding her, you know, I think at least two weeks, maybe more since she had disappeared. And then in the second one, they've interviewed her about her experience of being in the woods. And I think you might find that interesting sort of based on our conversation, because she has a lot to say about that she'd gone in under what she thought was very controlled circumstances. You know, I'm going to go up a trail. I'm going to have a quick run. She didn't bring a cell phone or water with her because she thought everything was in control. You know, it's Hawaii. It's a place where hiking and jungles are a way of life. And she lived there for quite some time. And yet she just all of a sudden went up a trail and could not find her way out. And she was lost for for weeks and, you know, ended up hurting herself and all this kind of wild thing. And all of a sudden it's, she was really going someplace where there are no handrails and it becomes terrifying. And 
just completely uh, a completely different experience from you know what we think and you know the fact that she was wearing um those like three quarter length yoga pants yeah. and and her just the bit of her skin that was showing her ankles that were showing were just it all just got completely scarred and scratched you know, just from having that little bit of skin showing uh-huh. that's, you know, a fashion statement. Again, you know, our <laughs> our our silly soft ape bodies, right? <laughs> like it just it's like, oh, branches, I'm gonna get scratched, you know. <laughs> and and it's yeah, really, really interesting and uh a quite a, a very dramatic tale and, and, you know, obviously changed her life entirely. And then again, you know, people blamed her for getting lost and accused her of doing it for attention and all kinds of things that, that humans bring to these situations. Yeah. Definitely seek that out. That sounds really interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah. And so we've talked a little bit about in passing these bonsais uh, that you're making these in, mm-hmm. And so you were saying that the the process in them, you're actually collecting dead sticks and sort of creating composites. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Um, well, why do I do that? I don't. I could just draw a tree, really. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> why do I bother? I <laughs> I live in Samui. It's very hot. I don't like sitting outside in the sun. <laughs> I'm a baby. I'm a baby soft ape. Yeah. <laughs> I sit in my studio and draw. Um, so, you know, it needs must, I guess. So I, I collect things and I come back and draw them. I mean, that's, that's, that's mm. the kind of, that's not the real reason that I do it. That's the, that's the hardship of life reason. But I, I love when things are broken and degraded and not appreciated. They're not beautiful anymore. And I can pull them back together and, and make them a beautiful thing. And that's, that's quite fun. Mm-hmm. And I can also torture them a little bit. I can control <laughs> them more. I, I, I give up trying to garden. I, I did that years ago and you're just fighting against the tide, you know, so here even more so where yeah. things grow so quickly. So the fact that I can take a stick and a twig and a branch and a couple of leaves and I can bind them together and hold them with some poles and, you know, kind of try and reconstruct them into something that is still alive. I mean, it it talks about the actual bonsai process where you are trying to keep something alive and and, um, control nature and and make it grow in the way that you want to and the amount of effort that you have to do to do that, to get things to grow when you're controlling it yourself when they would grow naturally, you know, and they, they do fine. If you just let them get on with it, trees generally cope or, or die, but then another tree grows in its place. You know, nature does quite well on its own, but when we try to do it ourselves, it's such a struggle. Mm. So I spent, I mean, I, I, these are really detailed drawings and uh, some of them are, uh, some of the longer ones, some of them are two and a half meters and they're just a, you know, a collection of old twigs that are tied together and, and drawn in a very slow meditative process. So I'm really trying to focus on the effort that it is to, to create something from nature or of nature. Mm. Um, but as well, the, the nastiness. These are discarded piece of, pieces of rubbish, usually. You know, these are things that have been killed. When they are killed, it's generally due to us, to yeah. humans. We, we've, we've got in their way. We've chopped them down or we've polluted them or destroyed them somehow. And that's, that's very sad. It's very sad to see things die here. And it's torturous and, and awful. And it's, um, it's scary. Yeah. yeah so it, 
I, I, I hope that that comes through in the drawings, that these are scared objects as well as slightly menacing, threatening objects. Mm, They're yeah. going to come back to life and haunt us, I hope. <laughs> well, that's so fascinating to hear you describe it that way, that they're supposed to the menacing as well as the haunting. And I really think that you've captured that because a lot of them, you know, they do have this dark foreboding, you know, I, I think that we, that there's a, uh, you have visual trope that's very, very old. That's of this sort of evil tree, right? The scary tree, you know, you see it in a Tim Burton film or even in, I think, uh, the Disney Beauty and the Beast and, you know, just these. Wizard of Oz. Wizard yeah. of Oz. Again, yeah. This idea that these trees can be, uh, menacing and evil, but then, you know, they're also, there's such a sort of sadness to them in the way that they're being held up and the way that they're being or pulled down or controlled. And, and so it is like, uh, yeah, there is that push in the pull of, of am I being threatened or am I doing the threatening <laughs> when you look at <laughs> we're, them? We're bound to get in this yeah in this terrible agony yes <laughs> yeah and you can really feel that with them and they um you know and again they have that that way of being beautifully rendered and I remember the very first thing I tried to draw that I have a very clear memory of and realizing that drawing was really hard and I was bad at it and I didn't like being bad at it and I was never going to try and draw again <laughs> was being asked to draw a tree in, you know, year four or something like that, <laughs> being sent out into the, the you know, the, the courtyard of the school and saying, okay, everyone go draw that tree and just being like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, just so <laughs> mad that it was so hard and just being like, I mean, I'm drawing every single branch. Why does this look like shit? Like so mad about it. <laughs> And so, you know, the trees that are really like trees and branches. I mean, for me, they're up there. It's like hands and feet. They have that, that quality to them where if it's off at all, there's like very little forgiving that the human eye does. Um, that, that you don't, you don't bring a lot to it. Like, you, you know, you can't sort of the person who's viewing doesn't meet you halfway with a tree. Like a tree has to be really exacting. And the way you've, you sort of mix that, that beauty of the actual rendering with the really emotional way that they, they move. And of course the, the darkness and in the etchings, you know, you have these, of course, deep, um, aqua tinting, you know, rich blacks with the, with the, the whites and all of it. It's, uh, very, very dramatic and very beautifully done. Yeah. I think the medium is very good for that. I mean, trees, trees are, I think trees are good subjects. They behave well. They keep still <laughs> <Yeah>. generally. <laughs> they don't tend to move too far. You know, they, they sit quietly. So I like, I like quiet things. So that, that's yep. good. But also, we, you know, like the landscapes, we know what they should look like. There is a trope that mm. I play with. I, I know what they should look like and I know what they do actually look like. And somewhere between those two, there is a tension, mm -hmm. which is funny and scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that it's really interesting to go through this very, very old tradition of bonsai as a, a method to get to that idea, because in a way... I can't think of anything that's a better example of this human need to control nature and it's the most beautiful when it's the most controlled. Because of course, bonsai are completely unnatural. And as you've mentioned, that they require truly a remarkable amount 
of work to hold this shape. And yet they're completely revered. They're bonsai museums. There's people who travel to see them. Um, the, the ones that are quite old are, are regarded as national treasures in the countries that own them. Yeah, there's very famous and beautiful bonsai trees. And the, the people that look after them are <laughs> just absorbed by it. Yes. It, it you know, you think the trees is growing slowly and and it, and not really much taking place. But then I've met a few of the bonsai masters, and they they're fussing over these trees all the time as if they're babies, newborn babies. You know, that need constant attention, and often caring for them more than their own children and families. You know, treating them like real family members. Yeah, yeah, I think I've I've seen that before because it's um, they do require that constant love, you know, in a way that and they don't, um, you know, in the way that even you know puppies eventually get some degree of <laughs> of, uh, of independence from you, you know, in a few years time. And of course, people ideally will will grow up and and you know be able to work and feed themselves. But a bonsai bonsai will never leave you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I can't believe it, but we're actually already coming up on the hour recording mark. Um, wow, that went quick. I know, I know. So I always want to make sure I have time to let my guests say where they can be found online in the digital sphere where people can connect with you and see your work. Um, well, I have a website, which is doloresdesad.com. And I have an Instagram as well, which is, this. Uh, my name is the same, Dolores, D-O-L-O-R-E-S-D-E-S-A-D-E. -E -E. And um, yeah, I'm always open to new contacts and new friends in the printmaking world or the art world. So I'm happy for anyone to get in touch. Wonderful. Well, we'll put links to those in the show notes and hope people will, will definitely reach out and start making more connections. And um, are you still keen to talk a little bit longer with Tim? Do a little shop talk chat? Do you have time? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, great, great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. It was really, really nice to chat. And I'm, I'm glad to hear your voice and get to connect, even if we're, we're not really traveling right now in Thailand. It's, it's nice I know. to talk to someone a bit close. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to talk with you, but it's always nice to talk about art as well. Absolutely. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Cole Rogers, co-founder and master printer at the High Point Center for Printmaking in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We'll talk about starting the workshop, the importance of community access, and making art outside of the coasts. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.